Acts chapter 8 tonight. Acts chapter 8. Before we get into this great chapter, if I had to title this chapter, I would title it, And the Gates of Hell Will Not Prevail. Remember, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And Jesus was telling his followers, I'm going to plant my church within sights of the gates of hell, meaning that Jesus never said to the church, to you and I who follow Christ, that being part of the church, being part of his church was going to be easy. In fact, we understand we are planted in enemy territory, if you will. We are planted behind enemy lines. This is not Jesus' world. This world is no friend of Jesus nor friend of the church. And yet Jesus wanted his church to know that even though the world will not accommodate to us, nor accept us, if you will, that through Jesus we are more than enough to make an impact on the world around us because of him. And that the gates of hell will not prevail. And whatever obstacles, whatever opposition, whatever challenges you and I face as the church, we should be encouraged tonight by this chapter because what we're going to see is in spite of all the obstacles, challenges, and opposition that the church was facing, the church was still triumphant. The church was still prevailing just as Christ said it would. And, and I hope that each of us even individually, not just as a church, but each of us individually will take encouragement from that as well. That Jesus wants to be in a place where we understand that the world around us and our circumstances and our situation at times may not always be accommodating, but we can still prevail through Jesus Christ. We can still be triumphant. We can still rise above the challenges and the opposition and the obstacles. We can be overcomers as Jesus envisions his people to be. That's why in the book of Revelation, those couple of chapters where Jesus talks to his church, he's always encouraging them at the end to the overcomer, to the overcomer, to the overcomer. He never says it's going to be easy, but he does promise that he will give us what we need as his church and as his people to overcome. And that's what chapter 8 of Acts is all about. Because I want to just share with you for a few moments, what are some of the challenges? What are some of the obstacles? What are some of the opposition that the church is now facing? Well, notice, beginning in the verse 1 of chapter 8, now on that day, what day? The day that Stephen was murdered. It was sort of like the linchpin, if you will, to unleash upon the church, notice, a great persecution, not just a small persecution, a massive persecution. All of a sudden, all of this pressure. Why? Because Stephen could not keep his faith in Jesus to himself. You see, up to this point, in a sense, in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was okay with people uh, believing in a god as long as they were willing to accept all the gods of Rome. That, you know, you just come to, it's just one of many gods. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead and people start saying, no, 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 wait a minute, there is no other God but Jesus, that's 
when things began to take a turn. And that's when this intense pressure and persecution began against the church. Notice verse 3, Saul was trying to destroy the church. And again, I remind you, Jesus said, they'll try, but the gates of hell will not prevail. He entered one house after another, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. Can you imagine the households that Saul just himself upset, separating husbands from wives and wives from husbands and parents from children, having them murdered because of their belief in Jesus Christ? Next week, I hope you'll come back because we're going to talk about Saul of Tarsus and the unbelievable conversion that takes place in his life and what encouragement you and I can gain from that. But tonight, I want you to see what was happening to the church. So there was this great persecution that was happening. But there's also other things going on. Notice also in verse 5, it says, Philip went down to the main city of Samaria, and much of what takes place in chapter 8 is in the region of Samaria. Why is that a big deal? Because that was a huge barrier. And God was beginning here, even at this early stage, to begin to break down barriers even with his own people because, see, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They hated them. And yet Jesus told his followers, go into all the world and spread the gospel, starting in Jerusalem, but then where? Into Samaria, Judea, and to the uttermost part of the earth. Samaria? Really, God? That's why in John 4, when Jesus took time to talk to a Samaritan woman, it wasn't just that he was talking to a woman, it was, he was talking to a Samaritan woman. You've you got to understand the history here. For 1,000 years, the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. And even though the Samaritans lived directly north of the Jews, the Jews would literally go hundreds of miles out of their way to go around Samaria so that they wouldn't even have to go through Samaria to even deal with Samaritans. Now, now they're taking the gospel to these people. Can you imagine the challenge now even within their own? So here's this pressure coming from outside, external pressure, this great persecution against the church. Saul's going around, throwing Christians in prison, having Christians like Stephen murdered for their faith. And then there's this internal sort of conflict that the church is having to deal with because now they're being asked by God and led by his Holy Spirit to go and share this good news with people that they can't stand. Think about this for a moment. What group would you today have a really hard time taking the gospel to if God says, I want you to go to them and share the good news? Oh, God, not them. I can't stand them. I don't want to be around them. I don't want to talk to them. And what God needed to do was not only, you know, obviously work on those outside of his kingdom at this point, but he also needed to do some work within the hearts of his own people so that they would be willing to go and share Jesus with those that they really didn't like. Samaria? Really? Well, there's even more obstacles and opposition and challenges. Notice in verse 7, 
as the gospel began to be spread and people came to know the Lord and the power of God was evident, unclean spirits crying out with loud shrieks, verse 7, were coming out of many who were possessed. And now all of a sudden, the spiritual world was being rocked by the power of God and Satan and demonic activity was becoming way more active because of the advance of the gospel and the advance of the kingdom. This will always happen, folks. Remember the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus started to go out in his ministry, what did he confront a lot? He confronted demon possession and, and people, you know, being affected by demonic forces and all that because once the kingdom of God starts to roll and starts to get momentum and the power of God becomes evident, Satan in the demonic realm goes up as well. You even see this later on in the chapter where Philip is is uh, in Samaria, and we're introduced to a man named Simon in verse 9 who practices magic, which I believe this kind of magic wasn't just sleight of hand or illusion. This was, this was demonically empowered kind of magic. In fact, it's interesting that the word for magic and the word for great in the Greek language is the exact same word, which is interesting then when you see in verse 9 it says, the people of Samaria claiming to be someone great. All the people from the least to the greatest played close attention to him, saying, this man is the power of God, and it's called great. Doesn't it remind you that even in the last days, the Bible says one of the reasons why people will follow the Antichrist and the false prophet is because of their miracle-working powers, and we've got to remember, church, that, that yes, God has great power to do miracles. In fact, he is all-powerful, he's almighty, but... Satan has power too. Obviously, nothing like the power of God. But what we're seeing here is that, so there's great persecution coming against the church. There's barriers that need to be broken down for the church so that they can take the gospel to the whole world, to the uttermost parts of the earth, Samaria. Then you have the demonic world, you know, starting to gear up and become more active and, and, and press and and, and push against the church and resist what's going on there. And you see this coming into play. And then at the end of the chapter, you have, and we're going to talk more about this in just a few moments, this really cool story about this one man, this Ethiopian eunuch, who goes to Jerusalem, verse 26, and he goes to worship in Jerusalem. And you can tell by the description of this man, that he really is a genuine searcher. He, he really wants to, to know about God and find God. But here's the sad thing. He goes to Jerusalem and he goes to the temple and he leaves empty. Just like a lot of people today who go to church trying to maybe find God, but they don't find him there. So how sad is it that he leaves Jerusalem still sort of empty and unfulfilled and yet, again, obstacle, challenge, this man is on a deserted desert road from Jerusalem back to his homeland in Ethiopia, and the Holy Spirit is directing Philip, this one guy, to hook up with this guy and bring them together. So you want to talk about, you know, time and distance and cultural barriers and all these things that are challenges. 
And yet God is showing in this chapter, I'm bigger than all of this. I am greater than all of this. And this reminds us, this story of this Ethiopian eunuch, that God sees that if just one person's heart is open to him, he will go out of his way to make sure that somebody that knows him hooks up with that person and is able to share Jesus with them so that they can come to know the truth, you see. That's who God is. See, distance and culture and all these barriers aren't too much for God. And that's what he wants his people to see. The gates of hell will not prevail. Regardless of what we're talking about, persecution or, or prejudice or, or pride and pretense with, with uh, Simon the magician. And then talk about time and distance and all these other things. Nothing is too much for the church to overcome if we're willing to do it in the power of the Lord. So, an amazing chapter. A lot of stuff going on. But I want you to see this. In the midst of all this, there was not only great persecution, there was great proclamation. It was like, no matter what people were dealing with, as the church moved out, man, in spite of the persecution, they just kept talking about Jesus. And I want you to see how often this phrase is used in this chapter. Notice beginning in verse 4. Those who had been forced to scatter were, were, went around proclaiming the good news of the word. There's the first time. Then if you go down just to verse 5. Philip went down to the main city of Samaria and began proclaiming the Christ to them, the Messiah. Then if you go down to verse 13, or excuse me, verse 12, when they believed Philip as he was proclaiming the good news. That's the third time you see this. Then over in verse 25, notice, Peter and John started back to Jerusalem. What were they doing? Proclaiming the good news. Verse 35, Philip talking to the Ethiopian, started speaking, beginning with the scripture, proclaimed the good news. And then finally, when the spirit snatched Philip away from this man, he went to this place called Azotus, and as he passed through this area, he proclaimed the good news. Over and over, you see this phrase. Great persecution, great problems, if you will, to deal with and to overcome. But there was also this tremendous Great proclamation that was being made by the people of God. Everywhere they went, they were sharing the good news. They were being heralds. They were being evangelists. They were talking about Jesus. Oh, that the church, that we could do that today, that everywhere we went, we, in a sense, looked at the word of God as this wonderful, powerful seed, and we just scattered it and spread it everywhere we could. Because I believe what the Bible says about itself. There's power in this word. The word of God is living and powerful, the writer of Hebrews says. God says himself, my word will not return void. Paul says to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And God has placed power in his word. If we will just be faithful enough to share his word, God will work through his word. And so I want you to be encouraged that in spite of all the 
challenges and opposition and obstacles that the church faced, what they were learning here in chapter 8 was with everything that was thrown at them, they were able to prevail through their God. And as they went, they just kept proclaiming the good news wherever they went. And they were seeing fruit from it because people were believing in the Lord. In fact, you see this back in verse 12 of chapter 8 when they believed Philip as he was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they began to be baptized, both men and women. Great persecution, great proclamation. But I do want you to see the great power of God that was evident in his church as well. Because God's word says the kingdom of God is not about idle talk. It's about power. And God wants his church to be a place filled with his power, manifesting his power, displaying his power. He wants his people to be a powerful people so that no matter, again, what what you and I are facing, we can rise above it. We can overcome it. We can claim verses like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That we have a power greater in us than anything that we're going to face because Christ is all-powerful. And he wants to manifest that power through his church. So notice again back in verse 6, as the crowds in Samaria were paying attention with one mind to Philip, they heard and saw miraculous signs. God's power was being manifested. Yes, unclean spirits were coming out of people, and many paralyzed and lame people were being healed because God wants to heal people. And God has the power to heal people. He had the power to heal people then. He has the power to heal people now if we believe in his power. He wants to heal people spiritually he wants to heal people emotionally he wants to heal people physically and God has the power to be able to do it Simon verse 13 the Bible says he believed and was even baptized and then he stayed close to Philip why did he stay close because what was really attracting this man was this spiritual power you and I need to be careful because sometimes when God's power begins to manifest in our lives or in the life of our church, there's going to be people who attach themselves to us simply out of either curiosity, wondering what's going on and, and what's really being manifested, or they want what is being manifested in and through us, but they're not going about it the right way just like Simon. Simon thought he could buy this power. And notice verse 13, he saw the signs and great miracles. And then in verse 19, he asked Philip, give me this power too. Well, he had power, right? But he saw that the power that Philip was manifested through him by God was even greater than the power that he was doing with his magic arts so that everyone I place my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Excuse me, he was talking to Peter here, not Philip. And Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Strong words. In fact, this is not too strong of a translation. And this 
might offend some of you. I don't mean it to be offensive in this way. But in the original language, Peter literally is saying, to hell with you and your money. That's how strong Peter is here. See, I don't believe that Simon, others disagree with me, I don't believe that Simon was really a believer. You say, well, wait a minute, the Bible says he believed. Yeah, the Bible says demons believe. And we've got to come to understand that there are many people who say, I believe, and even are baptized like Simon, but they're not true believers. If you study the language that Peter uses to describe the state of this man spiritually, I don't believe there's any way you can come to a conclusion that this man really knew the Lord. So there's going to be people, I mean, think about Judas. Judas was part of the disciples. Saul, the things that Jesus did, heard the things that Jesus did, but he wasn't a true believer, even though he followed, you see. So again, there's all this stuff going on, right? A lot of stuff going on. And yet God was working in and through it just continuing to let the church march forward in spite of all the stuff that they were dealing with. Because here's what you and I have to understand. And we need to understand this as a church. As we take more and more territory for God and more and more for the kingdom of God, there's going to be all kinds of stuff happening. It's actually going to churn up more stuff than it settles. Because God wants to, first of all, do things in our life that maybe... We haven't let him for a while, and it's sort of lied dormant there, and we've just sort of shoved it under the rug and not dealt with it. And when God begins to really work, man, he, he starts bringing up stuff, and, and God's people have to deal with stuff themselves. And then we start becoming much on the radar of the spiritual, supernatural world of evil out there as well. And they start to come at us. And there's all kinds of stuff. But what God wants us to see is that we are more than enough. The gates of hell will not prevail because he is more than enough to deal with it, no matter what it is. I want you to end with me, though, in this last part of the chapter, beginning at verse 26, where an angel of the Lord says to Philip, get up and go south on the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. There's something God's looking for. Great persecution, yes. Great proclamation, great power. But there was also such great obedience. One man. It's all God was looking for. One man that would be obedient. That if God said, hey, I want you to go down here. He's like, I'll go. He went. And he met an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasury. He came to Jerusalem to worship and returning home, sitting in his chariot, reading the prophet Isaiah. You want to talk about the providence of God. First of all, how bumpy a ride was an old-time chariot? And can you imagine this Ethiopian eunuch sitting there bumping along on his chariot back to and he, oh, he just happens to be Isaiah? To me... Of all the Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah would have been the best one to go to if I was searching for Jesus. It is the one out of all the Old Testament books that really reveals Jesus as the one who came to suffer and die 
for us. And that's exactly where he goes. He goes to Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to a slaughter. Do you think that's any accident? I don't. I think that shows the power and providence of God, that God was preparing this man, that he went to Jerusalem and couldn't find Jesus, even in the temple, but he was going to find him on a chariot going back home with one man's obedience, Philip, to what God's direction was in his life. See, no obstacle is too big for God. That's why when I hear Christians say, oh, there, there's this, what, what if there's this one person that really wants to know God? Well, then Go to Acts chapter 8 and be encouraged. If that person truly has a heart for God, God will make sure that somebody who knows him will get to him and explain to him or her about Jesus. That's who our God is, and this illustrates that. Then notice verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So again, look at Philip's obedience. He ran up to it, heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah, and he says, do you know what you're under, understand what you're reading? And the I love this. The man was so teachable and so humble. He says, how in the world can I unless someone guides me? I love that. Oh, that we would have that teachable, humble spirit. God, guide me, lead me. I need, I want to know more. And then I love the fact that Philip was in a position in his life that he could. He could go to, I think that Philip, just like Stephen, knew the Old Testament scriptures that it wouldn't have mattered where this man was, somehow Philip was going to, Get that man to see Jesus in that scripture. So he invited Philip, verse 31, to come up and sit with him. The passage he was reading was that great passage in Isaiah 53. Please tell me, verse 34, who's the prophet saying this about himself or someone else? So Philip started speaking, and notice, beginning with this scripture, proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. As they were going along, he saw water. He says, look, there's water. What's preventing me from being baptized? Philip ordered his chariot to stop. They both went down, and he was baptized. He comes up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, literally raptured him away, because the same word that's used for caught up and rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 is the same word that's used here for snatching Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him anymore, but he went on his way rejoicing. A couple things before we wrap this up tonight. You also want to talk about a challenge. Philip got back and started ministering to the Lord after his dear friend was murdered. Let's not forget that. Stephen and Philip were close. It hasn't been that many days since he saw his dear friend stoned to death. And yet here he is just making himself available to the Lord. It's not that he's not grieving over the loss of his friend Stephen, but he understands there's a moment here, there's an opportunity here, and God wants me to go because my friend, I don't want to see him die in vain. He died so that people could know Jesus. And if I have an opportunity to bring somebody to Jesus, I'm going to honor my friend by doing it, not by sitting in my house and mourning a loss. There's a time to mourn and there's a time to grieve, but there's also a time to take Jesus to people and seize the opportunity. 
and talk about something to overcome there, even in Philip's own heart and, and life. And what you see here in this chapter, after all this, is because of God's deliverance and people coming to know him in spite of, again, all that's going on, notice the rejoicing. Notice that this man, even though the Spirit snatched Philip away, once he found Jesus in his heart and he was baptized and he knew the Lord, he went on his way rejoicing. That's not the first time that's mentioned. If you go back to verse 8, notice after the power of God was being manifested and people were being delivered and people were coming to know the Lord. I love what it says in verse 8. There was great joy in that city. In spite of the great persecution, because the power of God was there, and the people of God were there, and the great proclamation about God was there, and God was moving, and God was working, and there was great joy there in spite of it all. But I want to end with something sweet tonight as well that I hope will encourage you. I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 56 with me. Remember here, we're talking here about the Ethiopian eunuch. And he was in Isaiah 53, right? Well, go to Isaiah 56 for just a moment and then hold that there. Because before we look at these couple of verses... I don't want us to miss this as well out of Acts chapter 8. Notice what was happening. The church was what? Was expanding. Was moving out. This little group, this little community of believers that started in Jerusalem now was exploding all over the world just as the vision of Jesus had seen and foretold and prophesied about. I, I see my church going into the world. And notice where it was going. First, to Samaria. Barriers were being broken. Then Judea. Oh, then guess what? Now this very influential Ethiopian is going to take the gospel about Jesus back to Ethiopia. And we know that Ethiopia has been a strong, has had a strong Christian witness for several thousand years. Where did it start? Maybe with the Ethiopian eunuch. And then the Bible tells us at the end of chapter 8 that Philip went into Azotus. And there again, it was spreading. It was growing. It was expanding. It's like the more the devil and the more the world tried to put a, put a lid on the church and put a lid on Jesus and put a lid on the gospel, the more the gospel was exploding because God wanted to show his people that I'm not going to put you, nor have I put you in a place where you're going to be accommodated and where you're going to be accepted. The world's going to hate you because it hated me first. But if you believe in me and you trust in me and my power and who I am and who I can be through you, it doesn't matter what circumstance you are in. You can overcome. You can rise above it. You can prevail. I think what was precious to this Ethiopian eunuch, and I think, I just have a hunch. I'll find out for sure when I get to heaven. 
But because he was so close, because he was in Isaiah 53 already, I think before Philip maybe was snatched away, I think Philip hopefully had a, a chance to just turn over a couple chapters in that scroll of Isaiah to Isaiah 56, because this would have been precious. And I want you to see how precious this would have been to an, a eunuch. Notice beginning in verse 3 what the Word of God says. Isaiah 56, verse 3, No foreigner who becomes a follower of the Lord should say, The Lord will certainly exclude me from his people. The eunuch should not say, Look, I am like a dried up tree. For this is what the Lord says, for the eunuchs who observe my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and are faithful to my covenant, I will set up within my temple and my walls a monument that will be better than sons and daughters. I will set up a permanent monument for them that will remain. Think of the significance to that eunuch who had no chance to have any sons or daughters, who could not have any earthly legacy who maybe felt very disenfranchised and, and never found a place to belong and never was accepted. And now God is telling him, you have a place in my kingdom. You belong with me. In fact, I will make you a permanent place. You, you will never feel like you never belong again. You never have to feel like an outcast again because my table is always open to anyone and everyone who humbles himself before the Lord. How precious would that have been to this man who felt like, I have no, nothing or no one of, of my own, and God saying, oh, I'll make you a monument. It'll be better than having sons and daughters because you may have, have had if you wouldn't have been a eunuch, you may have had a lot of natural children, but now you're going to have way more spiritual children, way more eternal children. And again, I just have to believe that when this Ethiopian eunuch went back to Ethiopia, he was one of the ones that probably started that seed of Christianity in that country that exists to this day. I think we'll meet this man in heaven one day. And I hope this will encourage you before we wrap this up tonight. That story about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch reminds us God's not always looking for a huge crowd or a big community or a mass amount of people to be able to do something significant. Sometimes God is just looking for one of us because that whole deal was just one-on-one -on -one evangelism. It was one of his followers, Philip, willing to go where one person that was seeking God was. And look at the difference that one person made. One person. And so I hope tonight that you and I will be encouraged that maybe you think like, oh, I'm just one. What can I do? <laughs> you can do a lot. When you and I make ourselves available to God and we listen to his voice as Philip did and we follow him wherever he leads us to whoever he leads us to, what a difference he can make with a follower like that. And I hope tonight that all of us as 
his church will be encouraged. Because in Acts chapter 8, we certainly saw all kinds of stuff going on, swirling around. It's like there was a hurricane, great persecution, Saul threatening the church and all of this, throwing people into prison, the devil rising up, demonic activity rising up, cultural barriers to overcome, time and distance to overcome. God, who, who's adequate for these things? And God is simply saying, trust me, you will prevail with me. And I hope that we will realize tonight as we leave this place that we can prevail with God. The gates of hell, Jesus said, will not prevail. God's people, the church, will prevail when we trust and believe in our Creator and Savior. I don't want us to end with the Word tonight. I want us to end with some worship tonight. So I've asked Nicole to come back, and I'd like us all to stand, and I'd like us to sing tonight in closing tonight, and I'll come back up and just have a quick prayer. Because I feel like, how can, you, how can you have a time of worship like we had, and how can you be in the Word and just see what is happening around us and not just say, God, I, I want to worship you. I want to spend some time acknowledging you. So let's stand and let's sing to the Lord.